Hello, this is Jan Scruggs. I'm the founder of the nation's Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and my guest is Marshall N. Carter. He's got a rather amazing story to tell. Uh, in 1899, uh, his, uh, his grandfather actually graduated from West Point a little early during the Spanish-American War. They let everyone uh, out a little early. And uh, his father, as well, went to the military academy at West Point and ended up being a three-star general and was very much involved in the nation's uh, intelligence world. Uh, uh, he, as well, went to West Point in 1962 and decided that uh, he would become a Marine Corps officer. I mean, everyone sort of knew his family and he thought maybe he would try something different. So he became a Marine Corps officer. Uh, he received the Navy Cross. Um, I mean, I think it's the second highest uh, award for gallantry. And uh, he was in a, a very huge battle involving uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops who were very, very well prepared, who had high caliber, 50 caliber, 12.7 millimeter machine guns that could actually shoot down aircraft, helicopters, and indeed did uh, during the battle. So he was in quite a mess, and uh, but he did everything right, and uh, he actually held off the enemy using a, a bag full of hand grenades that uh, his men gave him. And the time, he was a Marine Corps captain at the time. So all good things end eventually. And uh, he got himself out of the Marine Corps and he had a wife and two kids and, you know, bills to pay. And he looked around and looked around, couldn't find a job. Finally, he did find a job with Chase and he learned a lot uh, at Chase. From Chase in 1991, ended up at State Street Bank and he ended up being the... Uh, president, chairman, or whatever, of State Street, one of the largest banks worldwide. And uh, it's pretty fantastic. So he retired. He, he actually was so successful at Chase Bank that, that their overall business increased by sixfold. I mean, that's a very huge thing to happen. So that came to an end. He said, I think I'm going to retire. And uh, the little, there's a little group in Washington, in New York, you've probably heard of, it's called the New York Stock Exchange. He became the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. Can you imagine that? This is uh, quite a career. I mean, <laughs> so I've met a lot of interesting people in my life, but Marsh Carter is certainly at the very top one half of 1% of uh, accomplished people. Everything he, he does uh, is done for the right reasons and turns out right. And he's also been very charitable with his money and contributions. And we were in the Quang Tree province, he and I, in the year 2000. And I said, Marsh, I'd, I'd really like to build a library for the kids in this neighborhood. And he said, That's, that makes sense. And he uh, actually gave me the money to do it. And uh, another West Point graduate, a guy named Bill Murdy, uh, gave us money for, and <laughs> for air conditioning the building, which is a real treat in a little place like Vietnam. So. Marsh, so what was it like all of a sudden, here you are as a Marine Corps officer, you got this great uh, intelligence ahead about the Viet Cong are gonna meet for play poker and for do whatever they did. And you land there and all of a sudden you're surrounded by them. There's just too many of them to deal with. Here you are a captain and people are getting wounded. I mean, your leaders are getting wounded. Tell me, tell, tell us what happened. 
Well, the intelligence said that there might be a couple of companies of Viet Cong there. We were to land and assault this village where about a 50 or 100 high-level Viet Cong cadre were supposed to be meeting. But the people we ran into were mostly their, their Viet Cong company security. And uh, once they saw that only 12 helicopters had landed, there was 176 of us in the rifle company, they started to reinforce. So we accomplished our mission and attacked the village and, and uh, captured at least one of the people, the high level people. But as we were being extracted about six hours later, we started getting heavy, heavy casualties among our junior leaders, the corporals and sergeants and the lieutenants. And um, we had to then extract ourselves. And one of the more difficult military uh, operations is to break contact with the enemy while you're in a firefight with the enemy. But we couldn't actually stay there that night because by we landed at noon by 4.30, 5 o'clock, we were pretty much outnumbered. So we uh, were able to get ourselves into the helicopter landing zone and extract ourselves, and uh, it was considered a big success. Uh, we had a body count of about 100, uh, and, of course, the air wing and the helicopter gunships probably got another 100 more. And this was an area where the Marines or the Army had not operated before. So even during the French War, 1945 to 1954, this was a fortified village that uh, friendly forces had not been able to uh, conquer or convert away from communism. So Marsh, uh, <clears throat> tell me about your, uh, your first sergeant there, some of the people listening to this know about the M16 rifle and the problems many people had with them, but you had a first sergeant who figured out the secret of making the M16s work properly. Yeah, we got the M16 after this operation a couple of months, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I had one of those wonderful sergeants who had been in the Marine Corps 19 years and had been 18 years in the infantry and rifle companies. And the instructions were to take the weapons out and shoot about 150 rounds through each one to kind of loosen them up. And we did that, and they still felt very, very tight. The sergeant came to me and said, you know, I think we need to do another two or 300 rounds. And apparently that was one of the keys because we didn't have trouble with the weapons that other companies had. Now, there was a problem with the wrong kind of gunpowder and the fact that the tolerances of that weapon were too tight to operate in a wet, jungle, muddy environment, unlike the M14 and the M1 that we'd had before. So we didn't have the trouble that a lot of people had. And uh, I think it was because we had a small arms expert who saw that the weapons were not getting ready uh, and not getting loose enough and act, act the, the action being very, very smooth. Yeah. Well, talk about the action of the human mind. Uh, you went through some very difficult things. It's uh, very traumatic. Uh, a lot of people can't even imagine what it's like uh, to 
see people dying and machine guns are firing and people are screaming at each other. And uh, it, it causes post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you think, what psychological effect did all this have on you? Any or none? Or? I think that uh, unlike um, watching a disaster, like if you went to the Indianapolis road race and you was a giant crash, you have this kind of a hard feeling of something disastrous happening. But when you're in combat, you're actually a participant. So sometimes you don't actually notice so much around you that somebody else would. But it, it goes back to the time of uh, Hannibal and, uh, and uh, uh, Napoleon and those people that the so-called PTSD has been called different things. But undergoing those kind of traumatic events, and sometimes if you're an 18, 19-year-old soldier or Marine, your best buddy is getting wounded or killed, these are things you don't forget your entire life. And I think the, one of the difficulties is separating those events from your life as you get farther down in your life. What I mean by that, I seem to have a kind of brain that I can compartmentalize things yeah. so that I can, in my own mind, I can say, okay, back in 1966, 67, and 70, 71, and my second tour in Vietnam, that's what I was doing. That was my job. That does not impact my job today as the CEO of a bank. So I don't, uh, I didn't, I didn't have debilitating PTSD, but I had some, anger management issues, you know, 10 or 15 years later, which I finally got a hold of. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you don't think about all these things. It's just that I was able to think about them. You have the night, the nightmares and thinking about the troops that didn't come home with you. But I somehow was able to not let it impact my day-to-day -day life and my job. Yeah, and you know, Marsh, uh, employers and others need to understand that. these We have these guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they've seen a lot of stuff, but it doesn't mean that every one of them has PTSD, and even if they do have PTSD, it doesn't mean it interferes with their job. So uh, Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think companies, because we've gone from uh, <coughs> the 1940s where we had a country of 100 and 30 million and we had 16 million in uniform in World War II to a company now where something less than 1% of people are veterans out of a country of 300 million. And I, you don't find a lot of veterans. When I joined Chase on Wall Street in 76, right out of the Marine Corps, there were only a couple of veterans that had actually seen combat in World War II. And so I didn't really have anybody to, like, talk to. <laughs> uh, Marsh, you give uh, lectures at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard. And uh, tell about what do you tell people in these lectures about their responsibility as leaders? And uh, how do you relate this to the military experience? Yeah, I'm often asked, and I teach, uh, give a few lectures in leadership at the Sloan School, MBA candidates at MIT. I'm usually asked about what are the most essential leadership traits that you've encountered uh, and how do you apply those? And 
the question arises because of the leadership books and there are thousands of leadership books. Every CEO seems to think they have the key. <laughs> and usually you look at the last chapter of those books and it says the 12 ways or the 18 ways to become a great CEO. And I found that there's really four basic skills that will take you to the so-called uh, inner circle, the gold ring. And that is first, the ability to make decisions. Second, the ability to communicate those decisions up, down, sideways in the company. Third, adaptability to change because uh, in the business world too, everything changes every six to nine months. And then finally, your own technical confidence in the job. Do you know your job? Do you know your markets? Do you know your products? So those four, decision-making, adaptability, communicating, technical confidence to me were the ones, and I found that I learned those in the military, and I especially learned them in combat, where as a 26-year-old rifle company commander of 225 Marines, they're depending upon you to make the correct decision and adapt to the enemy's change, changing a situation, and to get them safely through, first accomplish a mission, second, get everybody home safe. Well, I want to thank you for this interview, Marsh. And, you know, you never look like a guy who would sit there with a pan for, you know, a bag full of hand grenades and throwing it at people. But you did an excellent job, apparently. Because you didn't even get wounded, but I'll bet you a lot of them did. <laughs> well, that's true. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard being a veteran in a corporation where you're about the only one, you know, that saw combat. So Wall Street was kind of that way and after the Vietnam War. Keep up the good work, and uh, and we hope to see you in the near future. Thanks, thanks, Jan. Good to see you. Yeah.